he is also a crackerjack realtor, especially. Um, <laughs> is that a good thing? Yes, it's great to be a crackerjack realtor. Crackerjack anything. You're not, you're not familiar with the crackerjack expression? I thought crackerjack was a derogatory term, meaning like a cheap toy in a box full of stale popcorn. Welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. I'm joined by our two other excellent hosts, Bailey Perkins. Hello, ma'am. Hello. How are you? I am great, especially now that you guys can see my face on Squadcast. You all, the listeners, can't see my face, but at least Scott and Andy can see my face now. That's right. It's very exciting. It's She's been there in spirit and in voice, but not in face. So this is a, a new milestone in the... Uh, continuing saga of let's pod this as a um as a distance podcast i gotta uh, say also, I mean, go ahead scott well i was gonna say i i really like the squad cast like i'm a huge like this is a this is a cool setup that they uh that they that they have um and it works really well you to say that. uh not yet um maybe we can maybe we can make that happen um but yeah, it's nice to be able to it's nice to be able to see people's faces even when you can't be together in person. Yeah, well, that voice there, of course, is Doctor Scott Melson. Hello, sir. Hello, man. Thanks for taking a break from fighting the good fight against <laughs> disease and infection to podcast with us about politics. Yeah, man. So I I wouldn't miss it. It's the highlight of my week. Well, good. that's it's also the end of the week, so that's always. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sunny day on Friday. That's good news. Uh, so, uh, one quick announcement, and then and then I want to do a quick update about COVID nineteen since we it is the thing plaguing all of our minds. But an exciting announcement, um, and listeners, you are literally the first people to hear about this. Mark your calendars for Friday, May twenty ninth. Uh, we will not be recording a podcast that day. Because Let's Fix This is going to be hosting a virtual civics convention. Civics Woo-hoo! Con. Um, it'll be the first one. We were going to do it in person this year, but obviously that's not possible. Uh, and so we're going to make it virtual. Uh, this year it'll be free for everybody. It'll be streaming um, online. Um, and this we've really just been planning a whole bunch of it in the last couple of days. Um, things happen to come together in a very serendipitous way. We will have a series of panel discussions that will be kind of live streamed, um, done virtually. We'll have topics including redistricting and gerrymandering, voter registration, vote at home, youth engagement, um, uh, two or three other things that are escaping my mind as, uh, as we talk. But anyway, needless to say, we're gonna have uh, nationwide experts, right? So author David Daly, um, Katie Fahey from uh, Voters Not Politicians in Michigan, um, someone from Common Cause, open primaries, ranked choice voting, uh, running for office, really all the issues that you listeners care about uh, will be streamed that day. Super excited. So mark your calendars, May 29th, more details to come very soon. I, I will even tell you, we have theme music already. This is That's how advanced and... Uh, you know, totes profesh. We are about this deal. So uh, mark your calendars for that. All right. Um, 
Back to the current pressing topic, COVID-19 updates. The latest models that came out today are showing that Oklahoma's peak will be sometime around April 27th or 28th, which is about a week later than it had been showing. Scott, I'm going to go to you first. Do you think we've been somewhat successful in flattening the curve? Um, So that is, and I'm sitting here actually looking at the, first I would say, I'm going to give a long answer to a yes or no question, which we're, will surprise. Which will surprise I'm shocked. shocked, I tell you. <laughs> so, so, you know, people are always talking about like, well, the models show this, the models show that. It's important, one, for people to realize that there are lots of different models, right? Like, I know that the one that the governor is referencing and what I think most people are referring to when they say the, the models are the IHME models. This is the covid at healthdata.org um and this is a this is a like um uh, ihme is institute for health metrics um this is a good model i think um i will say it's one of the models that probably has some of the most optimistic scenarios um and that's not that's not a good thing it's not a bad thing it's just something you should say about the model um I think that looking at that model and as well as looking at the data that we're seeing here locally on hospitalizations particularly, I think, yeah, I think we probably have been somewhat successful in flattening the curve. I'm cautiously optimistic that what we've done so far is starting to bear some fruit. Now, that doesn't mean that like we've been successful and we should just like say, screw it, we bit it, we've, we beat the corona, we should go about our day um, or go about our lives, right? We're now... Instead of seeing what was originally like, so today is April 10th. We were originally supposed to peak four days ago, right? And the peak at that time looked like real bad, right? So now we've pushed the peak back a month. And it looks like, again, if you're looking at the Institute for Health Metrics models, um, on April 26th, when we would hit our hit our peak, we would need uh, about 1,400 ICU beds, but or we would need about 1,400 hospital beds, and we would actually have about 5,500 beds available. We would need 276 ICU beds, and we would have 467 ICU beds available, and we would need 234 ventilators, and we would have about 640 available. So um, that's really good, right? Like that's a that's that's excellent because what that means is that at our worst day, we would have the capacity, like we would be well within our capacity to deal with this um, in our health system. Now, there's a there's a really, really, really big but that we have to build in here, okay? And that's the margin of error, right? The margin of error, particularly on how many hospital beds would be needed, um, is quite wide. It ranges from 2013 to 4,493. Okay, so the the model is projecting, you know, like the model is projecting like 1,400, but like there's a huge range there. So the scenario could look dramatically worse than what what the model is projecting. Um, the good news is though, is what it appears is that when you look at ICU beds. Um, I mean, yeah, in the worst case scenario, we would end up needing more ICU beds than what we would have available, um, but not by not by such a huge margin. Um, and I think similarly with ventilators, there's a scenario where we could we could be short uh, about four or five hundred ventilators, um, which would be bad. But that's again, that's the margin of error. That's or the range, the confidence interval. Um, that's not the that's not what the model is predicting. So I think I'm, I'm, that. 
Go ahead. I could add, like, just to put some numbers, put a, a finer point on that. As an example, on April 28th, which is roughly the peak uh, for Oklahoma, the, pro- the projected peak, they are projecting that we will need 280 ICU beds. However, as you said, the range on that is on the low end, we might only need 65. On the high end, we might need 796. So <laughs> that is an enormously wide, like it's a difference of like, we need a few beds or a few beds plus 700 more, right? Um, and it and if in that worst case, we don't have enough beds. And so they're kind of saying like, we think we've got enough in the mid range, but uh, we don't know. And as we get every day closer, these models are updated and, and the data will become more precise, much like, I don't know, like a weather forecast, right? We're 10 days out, I don't know, but three days out, it's a pretty good chance. Well, and speaking of weather, this also does not include anything that could potentially happen should we have any type of severe weather or any types of weather-related damages in the state that would require medical attention. So that's another point to, to keep in mind. You know, and I think just I think just something to um, just something to kind of drive this home. Also, because I think it's a good it's a good like uh, uh, what is what is it they say a teachable moment, right? Because um, I think I think sometimes people are kind of like why like why do we still not know? Like why do we not know how bad it's going to get? Why do we not know how many beds we're going to need? Like this is a scenario. We talk about uncertainty, like when forecasting elections a lot. Because uh, we're all obviously uh, disciples of five thirty eight um, at the altar. <laughs> we're disciples of Nate Silver, Silver at the altar of five thirty eight. Um, and so we we talk about data and uncertainty a lot. Um, but this is a situation where like you're taking data that is either fragmented or incomplete. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. You're taking a disease that we know a lot more about today than we did four months ago, but a disease that six months ago, no human being had ever had. So there's a lot we don't know about it, right? Um, and you're, you're taking these incomplete data sets and you're building in a lot of uns, uh, assumptions. And then you're taking those assumptions and then you're building a statistical model based on all these assumptions. And so one of the reasons you see such widely divergent models is because people make different assumptions about um, the data that they put into them. But the other thing is that whatever your assumptions are, your model is going to have a huge amount of uncertainty because the underlying data is so fragmented and you have to make so many assumptions because of that. So I think that to me, the, the, the most accurate interpretation of kind of where we are now is cautious optimism that yes we have flattened the curve however there is absolutely no cause for like um you know uh like letting up what we're doing and there is also i think it's still way too early to be having discussions about when can we when can we start thinking about resuming normal-ish life yeah all right well Food for thought. I guess we just continue to sit and wait and have more and more Zoom meetings every day. Well, one of the good things, too, is the governor has bolstered testing now. So it's open to everyone. And now there's more than 70 mobile testing sites in different places across the state. And so I was on a uh, one of those Zoom calls, <laughs> Andy, that uh, the lieutenant governor was on. And he mentioned that because of the governor's declaration, people don't have to wait for a doctor's order. They can just pull up to one of these sites near them 
and get COVID tested should they need testing. And so that's something I think that's going to help make the, the data a little bit more accurate and help us as we're painting these pictures on where we're at in terms of the pandemic. They did make one big stride. So we now are getting results, negative results from outside labs, not just the health department. So that has dramatically increased, A, the overall numbers of tests that we're seeing in Oklahoma, but B, we now have um, a better, it's not, I think, completely accurate, but a much um, a much more accurate positivity rate, um, which you can use to estimate prevalence. So it's now about 8%. Our positivity rate had been like I mean, super high, like 25 or 30% at some point, but now it's about 8%, um, which is like way better and way more realistic. Yeah, that's great. It's fun. I, you know, we've had uh, Lieutenant Governor Pinnell on the show before, and obviously I think most of our listeners know he's really championing um, travel and tourism in Oklahoma. And I'm going to guess that, you know, identifying the, 70 plus mobile testing sites is not <laughs> not the vision he had for promoting tourism in Oklahoma, but um, we appreciate his service nonetheless. All right, well, let's uh, shift our attention over to the events of the week with the legislature um, and events is an understatement. Yeah, I don't even. I'm trying to be polite, but honestly, this is like. Budget battle 2020. And I, I was, so I was just looking back at our, our Slack conversation about this week. And it's crazy to me that, that this started, that it was Monday of this week. I could have sworn some of this stuff was last week. And I'm just, just for reference for listeners, if you haven't already read it, the headline of the non doc article from Monday, today is Friday, Monday, was Cluster Stuck. Stit gets emergency powers, but budget bills boil over. Uh, Bailey, can you give us the 30,000 foot view of what happened maybe just on Monday and and where that puts us today? Yes. So on Monday, the legislature convened at 8 a.m. to start a special session um, that was triggered because the governor enacted CHIPA, uh, the Catastrophic Health Emergency Powers Act. Boom, the acronym. Um, and so with that, it gives the governor additional powers that we talked about in uh, the last podcast. And so in order for that to be enacted, the legislature had to give him the green light. And so they met for that special session to grant that authority to the governor for 30 days. And then they um, adjourned to the call of the chair for a special session because in 30 days from now, they're going to have to uh, evaluate whether or not they want to grant the governor those same powers again. So we're not out of special session. Um, so they went into regular session immediately after what we call gavel in and gavel out. So if you hear that phrase, that's what that means. Um, so they gavel back in for regular session where they were making decisions on three bills that would be used to take money out of our rainy day fund to put into our general revenue to ensure that agencies wouldn't have to face any shortfalls or cuts uh, just in this fiscal year, so the current spending. And so there's about four to $500 million um, through those three bills that allow the legislature to continue services as they are and not cut agencies. So there's been discussion from even the governor 
um, on whether or not there should be some agency cuts. And so he made comments about, well, one to two percent could sound reasonable. And the House and Senate leadership um, were in lockstep and saying, um, no, we're not going to cut agencies this year. We have a rainy day fund for a reason. It's a rainy day. So that's what we're going to use. Um, and so they passed those bills. And then when the governor was making the decision on whether or not to um, sign those in the law, he realized there was not an allocation for the digital transformation fund that he was wanting to see funded. And so there's a process called the Board of Equalization that looks at all the funds that are coming into the state and they help set a, a picture of where we are in terms of being able to pay our bills. And they have to meet to declare a revenue shortfall in order for those bills to be enacted, even if the governor were to sign it. He moved the meeting because he wants to see funds for the digital transformation fund um, be put into place, which is about 15 million is what he's asking for. So he's asking the legislature, go back and add that in, and then we can take care of these bills. And the legislature said, no, we funded what we think needs to be funded. You need to sign those bills. And so that's where we are right now in figuring out. So the governor has signed two of the three. So the one that he hasn't signed is related to um, triggering that um, revenue shortfall to actually enact those funds to be able to be used this year. So it's an interesting time. Right. So so as of today, which is April 10th, the state government is fully funded through the end of April in order to fund fully May and June, which are the, the remaining months of this fiscal year. The Board of Equalization has to meet, has to declare revenue failure, and then that allows OMES to transfer that money out of the rainy day fund. So part of this issue is we've got multiple rainy day funds, right? We've got the revenue stabilization fund and the rainy day fund and something else. And there's different rules for each one about how we can move money. And how much you can take out. So Right. Yeah. There's a, you can't take it all out. There's a limit. I do want to read... Um, this the statement. So on Tuesday, the House and Senate uh, issued a joint statement, the Speaker and the Pro Tem. This is not unprecedented, but it is very rare. Like often we see these the two chambers not get along, right? And sometimes they don't get along with the governor. There's kind of three parties, but to have both chambers and both parties of both chambers, right? Like Republicans and Democrats working together. Um, and so the this the speaker's statement i thought was really great i sent it to scott on on tuesday speaker mccall said the position of the legislature stated by veto proof majorities monday is not changing the legislature will not authorize cuts to core services during a pandemic uh, because the public needs its services right now the state's reserves which exist for emergencies just like this are sufficient for services to continue uninterrupted the legislative branch controls the power of the purse, and we've made our position clear on behalf of our constituents across the state. In short, I will summarize Speaker McCall's position as saying, no, come at me, bro. Like, or I just, said what I, I said. said. That's right. <laughs> right. We, we have spoken, and that's the end of the story. Uh, the, the pro tem treat statement was um, virtually the same, you know, like, 
Uh, and they made a big point to say like, well, so there's a subtext to this is that, that um, leader Virgin, right? The democratic leader in the house and, uh, and pro Tim treat. I've seen public statements from both of them this week that have said, Hey, you know, the governor's new powers under Chipa give him the, the power to move up to $50 million in state funds around to support a response to this pandemic. If, if he only needs, because the actual figure that he is haggling over, I think, is like about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Like the total fund is fifteen. So that that whole digital stabilization fund, it's like a fifteen million dollar request. But he has millions of dollars in the account still, right? So like they allocated fifteen million back at the beginning of the year. He still has like eight to twelve million hang out in there that hasn't been spent yet, and we're three fourths the way through the year. Well, and the other criticism is he also has a website for digital transformation that still has placeholder text. Yeah. What would you say you do here? Um, and, and honestly, the four tasks, the four like, you know, whatever um, pillar things that are on that website that are that are the digital transformation are like the Oklahoma checkbook, which we've had one of those this is like the third version of one in the last four years. Um, and a few other things, the digital ID law, which we still don't have real ID driver's licenses. I don't know why we're messing with a phone based ID that isn't valid everywhere. And if, and two other things and like those aren't completed, we've spent 12 million on this. I think the legislature is like, uh, Hey dude, like, we, we, we would fund this if you actually were putting this to good use and if it actually supported this pandemic. And I this is what I sent to you guys. I think I think that Leader Virgin and Pro Tem Treat are saying, hey, uh, Governor, if you think that you need this money to respond to the pandemic and keep things alive, why don't you go ahead and move $50 million? And I think it's a little bit of a test. Like I think they are luring him to be like, go ahead and try me so that we can skewer you for spending money on, you know, phone-based driver's licenses that don't matter and not on testing or medical response to an actual pandemic. Is there any way to see this other than the legislature for reasons that I don't know, I'm sure somebody does, um, giving the finger to the governor because that's <laughs> <laughs> right. Like well, and I don't some, think it's for that. some reason the legislature is for some reason, the legislature is uh, flipping the bird to the governor um, is what it looks like to me. Do you listen to this week in Oklahoma politics on KOSU uh, this week's episode? Neva Hill acknowledged that like there are a, a dozen rumors about why this is happening. And I'm, you know, I think we have heard everything from a member of the cabinet referred to a member of the legislature as basically a country bumpkin who didn't know anything, and that this was their way to clap back at him. To um, this is a, a way for the legislature to remind the governor that they gave him a lot of power over the last year, and they're trying to and that they are a co-equal branch. Right, right, um, and that he. And I think he, you know, and he has said this publicly, the governor sees his role as governor as being the CEO of the state. 
but that's it's not a direct correlation to being a CEO, right? Like this is a three-legged stool. Yes, the legislature is not they're not a board of directors. They are they are a co-CEO of the state. And in fact, they have specific powers that are constitutionally allocated to them that he does not have. They have way more power than the governor. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. That they have the power of the purse. They're the ones that actually pass the budget. And they've said, even if you veto it, dude, we can still top it. Like we can And and we and we will, right? Like Well, and I'll add that like I don't necessarily see this as a, you know, flip the bird to the governor because if you ask them about anything else, like how was the governor's response to COVID or anything, they come quickly to his defense and they say, we need to have one voice. I think the legislature doesn't want to be held accountable, especially in election season, to say, we spent $15 million on a digital transformation during a pandemic, right? Something that doesn't come across to the public as essential. And so I think it's a smart move by the legislature to say, listen, we didn't consider anybody's interests. We solely just funded potential holes that um, COVID and the drop in oil and gas have created in this season to make sure that our agencies can stay afloat. And that's where they're keeping their focus. I think that's strategic. I mean, I hear that and you may be a hundred percent right because that's an explanation that's super rational. and makes a lot of sense. Um, except that my limited experience with the legislature is that they're often not rational and don't make a lot of sense. And so that's the only reason that I, that I, that I wonder about that. But I will, I will also say, I mean, yeah, like, I think, I mean, that does, that makes a lot of sense. Like, like we don't need to be spending this money on this at this time. However, it's the only thing they singled out, right? It's the only thing they singled out and it's like his pet project. And it's not like they like totally zeroed it out. They were just like, it was like just enough to like, make sure that it's not all like to me, to me, this feels a little bit like, like just a little, just to get under your fingernails, just a little bit, or just like flick your ear a little bit. Like just, I like, like trying to just send a little bit of a, like send a little bit of a message and it may be on, it may be on several levels, right? It may be one, we don't need to spend the money on this during uh, the pandemic Two, we're a co-equal branch of government. And this is like, you are not, you are not the boss, right? You're not the man who's in charge. Um, um, and it may also be like, Again, I've, I, there's been a lot of rumors that there were some uh, there were some pretty unflattering words exchanged uh, by members of the governor's team towards uh, some pretty senior members of the legislature um, who have a lot of influence over how things are appropriated, and it may it may that may that may be part of it too. I don't think it's I don't think it has to be one or the other. Like I think it can be a mix of all three. Um, but I think there's, I think there's, I think there's a lot of different elements here. But it is, it is refreshing for me at least to see the legislature try like assert some of their power, power because they have they have a lot in uh, a unified way. This is like right. not even Republican, Democrat, or House or Senate. This is both chambers of all the parties coming yeah. together in alignment. This is a rarity. So, and I really enjoyed. Twitter on Tuesday in the late afternoon, the like, okay, ledge Twitter, right? So reporters and some of the legislature, because 
the members were all in lockstep and like whoever was tweeting was basically saying like, like retweeting the same stories or statements of being like, yup, like we're all in agreement and acknowledgement from both parties of like, you know, I don't remember the last time that we all agreed on something like this. And then members of the media coming back, uh, Tyler Talley from eCapital had tweeted something along the lines of, I just came back from a walk and I see that the governor and legislature are fighting about the budget. It's April. Everything is normal in the world, right? Like this is the way it's supposed to be. I it it was uh, it is yeah it it was interesting because we I think we all had were under the assumption that this was like not going to be a big deal. Um, and then for and then for the governor to come back with like, okay, you won't give me this two hundred and fifty thousand. He says, I'll be honest, I'm not one hundred percent clear exactly where the numbers are coming from and what number is most accurate. You know, the governor says it's you know, 960,000. The legislature says it's actually 250,000. The fund itself has 8 million in it from a total appropriations. I think it's supposed to be like 15 or 12 or something. Um, so there's a lot of different numbers floating around, but it's some, it's some number that in the grand scheme of things is not very high. And then for the governor to come back with that, like, oh, okay, fine. You won't give me my, the funds I want for my deal here. We're going to cut the budget by one to 2% across the board. And it, it was like, and that was an unnecessary escalation. <laughs> and to call this as the, the legislature playing politics, it's right. just really ironic. Calling it well, DC politics, Washington, Washington DC politics. politics. Yeah, that's yes. true. I was like, okay, well, that's clearly a talking point that is is like more threadbare than some of my underwear, right? So like it's just um like a ridiculous thing to say. I no, do you guys do you think um, if if the legislature does not fund the governor's digital transformation fund as he wants, does that have any bearing on how our state operates? No, like no. Well, especially because the legislature is in the clear position to override a veto. And so... I think at this point he just has to take an L and and, and move forward for the state. And the, but the thing is, this is this is a classic case of like this is one hundred. This is a shoot yourself in the foot, like self inflicted wound. All he had to do was sign the bills and not say a word about it. But instead, ignoring the fact that the legislature was united, not only is like the House and Senate united, but the parties are united. Like literally no one is on his side. He says, I'm going to try and spend whatever political capital I think I have um, and say, no, you have to do this my way. And now they've come back and said, oh, um, no, we don't have to. Oh, and by the way, one of my favorite songs from the movie uh, – the musical Hamilton is in cabinet meeting number one when Hamilton doesn't have the votes and Thomas Jefferson is singing to him about how he doesn't have the votes. Like, dude, you don't have the votes. Like, what did you like? What did you think was like? What, I don't know what he thinks is his leverage here. Well, but he does have two more years left in his term. And I think you'd be well served to heed that. Right. And be like, well, I don't want to die on this hill because I got two whole years left. And, you know, the the recovery of from this pandemic that we got to get through. I don't want to blow my, I don't want to throw away my shot. But, the, but right. But that's, but that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. Right. Like he, he doesn't have leverage. He doesn't have the votes. And now he's put himself in a position that if he vetoes it, 
they're going to override that right now he's put himself in a position that if he signs the bills he looks like he's given in to the legislature so he looks weak now if he doesn't sign the bills or he vetoes it and the legislature overrides him it shows that he is weak right so like he's going to come out of this having created a stink and get absolutely nothing for it so like i just like is this i mean and everyone who knows governor stitt that I've talked to that knows governor Stitt talks about how he's a real sharp guy and a real fast learner. So like, is this him not having experience in politics? Is this again, him not understanding what the job of governor is that he's not a CEO or is this him? Like, like, how did you not see this coming? Well, and these, these are peculiar fights. Like we were just talking a couple of episodes ago about um, the conflict with tribal nations. And now we're in conflict with the legislature. And so I hope that the next two years within the administration, there's more strategy on how to better work with these interests that are necessary for the state. Right. So I was going to ask, you know, to put this in perspective or put this into the narrative of, of what we've seen with our state government for the last, I guess, six months, maybe a year, right? That we've seen the, we've seen the, well, we've seen the governor get involved in this um, tribal gaming compact thing where he put a, an op-ed out on a weekend without notifying the tribes. It was very strongly worded. And we saw all five tribes um, of the five big tribes and now dozens more, right? All unified against the governor, which rarely happens, right? It's rare that you see five, those five tribes on the same page on stage behind a podium saying, no, it's us against you, man. Like, and you're wrong. And, and then he is, in my opinion, and I think the opinion of many others has stumbled or, or straight up fumbled that, several ways like he's continued to kind of double down and try to go all in and try to go all in and it feels like a poker game where he is running out of chips and most recently having attorneys reach out to the chiefs of tribal nations instead of leader to leader which many of them found that offensive so that definitely wasn't a good move right and uh, so that's interesting because i well for one i forgot about it and two in this budget debate there's a non-doc article that came out on Thursday uh, entitled Stitt signs two of the three bills to avoid April cuts and blames the legislature for politics. Um, and uh, shout out to Trace Savage, as always. He has some quotes in there from uh, Senator Thompson and Representative Wallace, the budget chairs, who talk very candidly about the governor's finance secretary or whatever his title is, Mike Mazzi, and about that they were, I mean, they basically said, normally the legislature talks to the governor about the budget, but he hasn't been in these meetings. He sent his guy, Mike, in here instead as his surrogate. And so this may be in both these cases. I wonder if it's the governor delegating to somebody else and that person is is making him look bad. I think this goes back to Scott's point about a CEO model that's not working in alignment with how government traditionally operates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
coffee's for closers, right? Like winners want the ball. You got to be the one that's in the room. And if you all work in the same building, like I, things are busy, sure, but like you might as well go across the building and be like, hey guys, let's have a meeting. And I, you know, I don't have a lot of warm things to say about Governor Fallon's leadership um, during her tenure here with the state. But I think we've all remembered the photos of her sitting in a room with the speaker, the pro tem, the uh, the appropriations chairs with uh, with Larry Nichols, Larry on, Nichols the on the phone. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, they, um, but they were all in the room together. And I think that's a, a thing that, you know, that's an image that has stayed with me. And and I think the governor might get more done. And so I'm curious if out of this, if we'll see some change in his cabinet going into the the latter half of his first term. He, I mean, he might, or he might get more done. He might not get more done. If he walks in the room, if he walks in that room and thinks that because he's the governor, that means that the appropriations chairs are going to like kind of, you know, bow to his will. He might even get less done. Right. I mean, like, yeah, well, cause he has no authority over them. He does, and he doesn't seem to understand that. And he also doesn't seem. This is, you know, this is. I think happens at the. This happens at the federal level to an even greater degree because there aren't term limits, right? But you've got some of these members that are like, "Hey, look, bro, like, I've been here. Uh, I've been here two years, and uh, I can be here for two more years when you're done." That's assuming you win a second term, right? Like, like I've, I've done this more, and I, I've, I'll be here. I'll, I've been here longer, and I can be here longer. Like, I mean, I wonder if that's a really good point that um, that even if he serves a full two terms, he's still four years less than some of these folks will have in the legislature. You know, I, another thing that I, I have not heard anything about this, but we know that the governor's like one of his main advisors and um, spokespeople that was with him from the campaign into office, Donnell Harder, recently left his office. And I think is working with the health department related to their response to COVID-19. But I wonder if the loss of her voice in his office has left a vacuum there and whoever's filling it is um, given the governor, I will say, less good advice. <laughs> maybe, maybe bad advice. Maybe. I mean, that's, I mean, it's entirely possible. It just, it seems like he doesn't really understand. And I mean, you guys tell me if you think this is not a right analysis, his main card to play is popularity, right? Like his main, his main piece of leverage is political capital. Top 10. Right. And I don't think he has as much of that as he thinks he does. Well, and at the end of the day, even like in his own words, like the book stops with the leader, right? So at the end of the day, whatever messages go out or whatever strategies um, are are put into place, it ultimately stems from the will of the person whose name is on the door. So I want I want to shift gears here for a second and not, or, or, or take the conversation in a little bit different, um, a little bit different tack and compare and contrast how he's operating with the budget versus how he's operating with the coronavirus response. Um, you know, so this is something I find really interesting. You know, we've, we've been talking today, we talked some, you know, last week about how this is a governor who sees himself as a CEO. He's used to being the guy that can make the decisions and I think has felt really frustrated at his inability to change things in state government um, because of the slowness and the bureaucracy and just the way government operates. 
Well, now he has the power to do a lot of those things, right? As it relates to how we respond to the pandemic. Like the legislature has given him enormous authority to to suspend laws, to move money, to to really be the the guy in charge of how the state responds to coronavirus. So what I don't understand is if that's kind of the model of governance that you want to follow, a strong executive that has all this power and authority to do these things, why was it that on Monday, after he got this authority like finalized from the legislature, why wasn't there a press conference outlining exactly what he was going to do? Why wasn't there a plan saying, I'm going to take this $25 million or $10 million or $50 million or whatever it is, I'm going to take this money from this fund and we're going to use it to go buy tests. And I'm going to take this money from this fund and we're going to use it to set up testing centers. We're going to have a testing center in every county in Oklahoma. And we're going to use this money to figure out what our testing program is going to look like. And here's the people that I'm hiring to run the testing program. And by the end of April, Oklahoma is going to lead the nation in identification and isolation of coronavirus cases. And so we're going to have our economy open before anybody else because we're going to have the foremost testing program in the nation. And here's how we're going to accomplish it, right? Like the agreement on how you get out of this is pretty straightforward, right? You flatten the curve, then you have a like very widespread and nimble and responsive testing program in place to monitor for resurgence of the outbreak. That's what you do. That takes logistics, it takes money, and it takes someone spearheading that effort. All of which it seems like a CEO would be well positioned to do, particularly when they've been given such broad authority by the government. So like he's trying to like run the show on the budget like he's a CEO when he's not, right? But in the area where we've given him the power to do that, all he's done is suspend a law about where ambulances and stretcher vans can and can't operate within geographic boundaries, right? Like we've given him this huge authority and so far he hasn't done anything with it. Like, is that a wrong analysis? <laughs> like <laughs> that, I, I didn't even think about it in that way until you expressed it. So no, I mean, I think, you know, Scott, you and I have talked about this for 113 episodes now of this podcast <laughs> that, um, that when presented with the opportunity to respond in a way that is publicly popular, broadly publicly popular, and also in the best interest of the public, or to respond in a way that is politically narrow, somewhat contentious, um, and and certainly uh, not a view shared by most Oklahomans, and this is according to like broad polling, right? Uh, certain individuals and groups seem to always pick the latter and not not do the like big obvious like open thing, right? Like as a as an example, and this is not what we're talking about here, but when given the opportunity to be more or less transparent, how do politicians choose, right? When they have the opportunity to like be a champion for public health or to be a champion for special interests, what do politicians choose? When they have like these kinds of things come up time and time again. And I will say, and I'll speak for me alone, though I know I'm not alone, but I think uh, I will say that I think this, Choices like that are the thing that make the public just like stomach turn at partisan politics, right? That's why we see record numbers of folks 
uh, absconding away from either party and going to unaffiliated or independent voters, right? Or it's also why we see voter turnout decrease, right? Because people feel like their vote doesn't matter because these yahoos keep doubling down on stupid bullshit, like political wins in their mind, right? And fewer people running. Right. Yeah. So I was going to say, you know, today is the end of filing um, period for state offices uh, and county offices this year. I'm really anxious. And I think next week on this podcast, we will dive into the numbers of, you know, who has filed, how many people have filed and, you know, who doesn't have challengers. I think that's going to be really fascinating. Some of these folks have been in office for, you know, eight, 10 years, right? They're nearing the end of their term and they haven't had a challenger the whole time. That's not democracy, right? That's right. I mean, I, arguably it is, but also like, it's not the democracy I think that you and I believe we should have. And most importantly, it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't. That's right. That brings us to the end of this episode. Bailey, thank you for being here. Thank you. Scott. Thank you. One day, coronavirus will be over, and I'm going to prepare for these more like I used to. Okay. <laughs> I, feel, I feel very unprepared every week. <laughs> Listeners, please don't forget to subscribe and rate Let's Pod This on Apple Podcasts because that helps other people discover and become better informed. Remember, you can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Fix This Okay. Scott is at SC Nelson. Bailey is at Bailey M. Perkins. And I, Andy, am at Andy OKC. You can also like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash let's fix this okay. Our website, as you may have guessed, is let's fix this okay.org. Please go there, sign up for the newsletter. You will get an update very soon about CivicsCon 2020. Uh, you can read our blog, find resources and details about upcoming events. And uh, we make a donation to help us keep doing this, which would be greatly appreciated. Our podcast is edited and produced by Scott Bailey and me. And let's pod this as a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network based here in Oklahoma City. Our theme music is Rhino Funk by artist So Down. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with the government. We encourage you to get involved in any way that you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week, 